Section 5 of The Golden Bough, Volume 1, The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings, by James Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. The Golden Bough, Volume 1, Chapter 3, Subchapter 2, Homeopathic or Imitative Magic, Part 4. Homeopathic Magic or Imitative Magic in Fishing and Hunting The Indians of British Columbia live largely upon the fish which abound in their seas and rivers. If the fish do not come in due season and the Indians are hungry, a Nukta wizard will make an image of a swimming fish and put it into the water in the direction from which the fish generally appear. This ceremony, accompanied by a prayer to the fish to come, will cause them to arrive at once. The islanders of Torres Straits use models of dugong and turtles to charm dugong and turtle to their destruction. The Toradjis of Central Celebes believe that things of the same sort attract each other by means of their indwelling spirits or vital ether. Hence they hang up the jawbones of deer and wild pigs in their houses, in order that the spirits which animate these bones may draw the living creatures of the same kind into the path of the hunter. In the island of Nias, where a wild pig has fallen into the pit prepared for it, the animal is taken out, and its back is rubbed with nine fallen leaves, in the belief that this will make nine more wild pigs fall into the pit, just as the nine leaves fell from the tree. In the East Indian islands of Saparoa, Harokoa, and Noisa Lot, when a fisherman is about to set a trap for fish in the sea, he looks out for a tree of which the fruit has been much pecked at by birds. From such a tree he cuts a stout branch, and makes of it the principal post in his fish trap, for he believes that just as the tree lured many birds to its fruit, so the branch cut from that tree will lure many fish into the trap. The western tribes of British New Guinea employ a charm to aid the hunter in spearing dukong or turtle. A small beetle which haunts coconut trees is placed in the hole of the spear haft into which the spearhead fits. This is supposed to make the spearhead stick fast in the dugong or turtle just as the beetle sticks fast to a man's skin when it bites him. When a Cambodian hunter has set his nets and taken nothing, he strips himself naked, goes some way off, then strolls up to the net as if he did not see it, lets himself be caught in it, and cries, Hello, what's this? I'm afraid I'm caught. After that, the net is sure to catch game. A pantomime of the same sort has been acted within living memory in our Scottish highlands. The Reverend James MacDonald, now of Ray in Caithness tells us that in his boyhood, when he was fishing with companions about Loch Arleen, and they had had no bites for a long time, they used to make a pretense of throwing one of their fellows overboard and hauling him out of the water, as if he were a fish. After that, trout or silk would begin to nibble, according as the boat was on fresh or salt water. Before a carrier Indian goes out to snare martins, he sleeps by himself for about ten nights beside the fire with a little stick pressed down on his neck. This naturally causes the full stick of his trap to drop down on the neck of the martin. Among the Galeries, who inhabit a district in the northern part of Halmahia, a large island to the west of New Guinea, it is a maxim that when you are loading your gun to go out shooting, you should always put the bullet in your mouth before you insert it in the gun for by so doing, you practically eat the game that is to be hit by the bullet, which therefore cannot possibly miss the mark. A Malay who has baited a trap for crocodiles, and is awaiting results, is careful in eating his curry, always to begin by swallowing three lumps of rice successively, for this helps the bait to slide more easily down the crocodile's throat. He is equally scrupulous not to take any bones out of his curry, for if he did, it seems clear that the sharp pointed stick on which the bait is skewered would similarly work itself loose and the crocodile would get off with the bait. Hence in these circumstances it is prudent for the hunter before he begins his meal to get somebody else to take the bones out of his curry, otherwise he may at any moment have to choose between swallowing a bone or losing the crocodile. Negative Magic or Taboo this last rule is an instance of the things which the hunter abstains from doing, lest, on the principle that like produces like, they should spoil his luck. For it is to be observed that the system of sympathetic magic is not merely composed of positive precepts, and comprises a very large number of negative precepts. 
that is, prohibitions. It tells you not merely what to do, but also what to leave undone. The positive precepts are charms, the negative precepts are taboos. In fact, the whole doctrine of taboo, or at all events a large part of it, would seem to be only a special application of sympathetic magic, which is two great laws of similarity and contact. Though these laws are certainly not formulated in so many words or even conceived in the abstract by the savage, they are nevertheless implicitly believed by him to regulate the course of nature quite independently of human will. He thinks that if he acts in a certain way, certain consequences will inevitably follow in virtue of one or other of these laws, and if the consequences of a particular act appear to him likely to prove disagreeable or dangerous, he is naturally careful not to act in that way, lest he should incur them. In other words, he abstains from doing that which, in accordance with his mistaken notions of cause and effect, he falsely believes would injure him. In short, he subjects himself to a taboo. Thus taboo is so far a negative application of practical magic. Positive magic or sorcery says, do this in order that so and so may happen. Negative magic or taboo says, do not do this, lest so and so should happen. The aim of positive magic or sorcery is to produce a desired event. The aim of negative magic or taboo is to avoid an undesirable one. But both consequences, the desirable and the undesirable, are supposed to be brought about in accordance with the laws of similarity and contact. And just as the desired consequence is not really affected by the observance of a magical ceremony, so the dreaded consequence does not really result from the violation of a taboo. If the supposed evil necessarily followed a breach of taboo, the taboo would not be a taboo, but a precept of morality or common sense. It is not a taboo to say, do not put your hand in the fire. It is a rule of common sense, because the forbidden act entails a real, not an imaginary evil. In short, those negative precepts, which we call taboo, are just as vain and futile as those positive precepts, which we call sorcery. The two things are merely opposite sides or poles of one great disastrous fallacy, a mistaken conception of the association of ideas. Of that fallacy, sorcery is the positive and taboo the negative. If we give the general name of magic to the whole erroneous system, both theoretical and practical, then taboo may be defined as the negative side of practical magic. To put this in tabular form, on tables displayed on the page, we have a tree diagram of magic leading on to theoretical magic as a pseudo-science and practical magic as pseudo-art, with practical leading on to positive magic or sorcery and negative magic or taboo. Taboos to be observed in fishing and hunting on the principle of sympathetic magic. I have made these remarks on taboo and its relations to magic because I am about to give some instances of taboos observed by hunters, fishermen and others, and I wish to show that they fall under the head of sympathetic magic, being only particular applications of that general theory. Thus, it is a rule with a galleries that when you have caught fish and strung them on a line, you may not cut the line through, or next time you go a-fishing, your fishing line will be sure to break. Among the Eskimos of Baffin land, boys are forbidden to play cat's cradle, because if they did so, their fingers might, in later life, become entangled in the harpoon line. Here the taboo is obviously an application of the law of similarity, which is the basis of homeopathic magic. As a child's fingers are entangled by the string in playing cat's cradle, so they will be entangled by the harpoon line when he is a man and hunts whales. Spinning tabooed in certain cases on the principle of homeopathic magic. Again, among the Huzuls, who inhabit the wooded northeastern slopes of the Carpathian Mountains, the wife of a hunter may not spin while her husband is eating, or the game will turn and wind like the spindle, and the hunter will be unable to hit it. Here again the taboo is clearly derived from the law of similarity. So too in most parts of ancient Italy, women were forbidden by law to spin on the high roads as they walked, to even to carry their spindles openly because any such action was believed to injure the crops. Probably the notion was that the twirling of the spindle would twirl the corn stalks and prevent them from growing straight. So too among the Enos of Sagalene, a pregnant woman may not spin nor twist ropes for two months before her delivery because they think that if she did so the child's guts might be entangled like the thread. For a like reason in Bilaspur, a district of India, when the chief men of a village meet in council, no one should twirl a spindle, or they think that if such a thing were to happen, the discussion, like the spindle, would move in a circle and never be wound up.
In the East Indian islands of Saparua, Heroke, and Noesa Lelt, anyone who comes to the house of a hunter must walk straight in. He may not loiter at the door, for were he to do so, the game would in like manner stop in front of the hunter's snares and then turn back, instead of being caught in the trap. For a similar reason, it is a rule with the Torejas of central Celebes that no one may stand or loiter on the ladder of a house where there is a pregnant woman for such delay would retard the birth of the child and in various parts of sumatra the woman herself in these circumstances is forbidden to stand at the door or on the top rung of the house ladder under pain of suffering hard labour for her imprudence in neglecting so elementary a precaution taboos observed in the search for camphor on the principle of homeopathic magic malays engaged in the search for camphor eat their food dry and take care not to pound their salts fine the reason is that the camphor occurs in the form of small grains deposited in the cracks of the trunk of the camphor tree accordingly it seems plain to the malay that if while seeking for camphor he were to eat his salt finely ground the camphor would be found also in fine grains whereas by eating his salt coarse he ensures that the grains of the camphor will also be large camphor hunters in borneo use the leathery sheath of the leaf stalk or the penang palm as a plate for food and during the whole of the expedition they will never wash the plate for fear that the camphor might dissolve and disappear from the crevice of the tree apparently they think that to wash their plate would be to wash out the camphor crystals from the trees in which they are embedded taboo is observed by hunters on the principle of homeopathic magic in laos a province of siam a rhinoceros hunter will not wash himself for fear that as a consequence the wounds inflicted on the rhinoceros might not be mortal and that the animal might disappear in one of the caves full of water in the mountains the chief product of some parts of laos is lac this is a resinous gum exuded by a red insect on the young branches of trees to which the little creatures have to be attached by hand all who engage in the business of gathering the gum abstain from washing themselves and especially from cleansing their heads lest by removing the parasites from their hair they should detach the other insects from the boughs some of the brazilian indians would never bring a slaughtered deer into their hut without first hamstringing it believing that if they failed to do so they and their children would never be able to run down their enemies apparently they thought that by hamstringing the animal they at the same stroke deprived their foemen of the use of their legs no aricara indian would break a marrow bone in a hut for they think that were he to do so their horses would break their legs in the prairie again a blackfoot indian who has set a trap for eagles and is watching it would not eat rosebuds on any account for he argues that if he did so and an eagle alighted near the trap the rosebuds in his own stomach would make the bird itch and the result that instead of swallowing the bait the eagle would merely sit and scratch himself following this train of thought the eagle hunter also refrains from using an owl when he is looking after his snares for surely if he were to scratch with an awl the eagle would scratch him the same disastrous consequence would follow if his wives and children at home used an awl while he is out after eagles and accordingly they are they are forbidden to handle the tool in his absence for fear of putting him in bodily danger homeopathic taboos and contagious taboos all the foregoing taboos being based on a law of similarity may be called homeopathic taboos. The Colones, an Indian tribe of eastern Peru, make use of poisoned arrows in the chase. But there are some animals, such as armadillos, certain kinds of falcons, and a species of vulture, which they would on no account shoot at with these weapons. For they believe that between the poisoned arrows which they use and the supply of poison at home, there exists a sympathetic relation of such a sort that if they shot at any of these creatures with poison shafts or the poison home would be spoilt which would be a great loss to them here the exact train of thought is not clear but we may suppose that the animals in question are believed to possess a power of counteracting and annulling the effect of the poison and by consequently if they are touched by it or the poison including the store of it at home would be robbed of its virtue however that may be it is plain that the superstition rests on the law of contact on the notion namely that things which have once been in contact remain sympathetically in contact with each other always. The poison in which the hunter wounds an animal has once been in contact with the store of poison at home. Hence, 
if the poison in the wound loses its venom, so necessarily will all the poison at home. These may be called contagious taboos. Foods tabooed on the principle of homeopathic magic. Among the taboos observed by savages, none perhaps are more numerous or important than the prohibitions to eat certain foods, and of such prohibitions many are demonstrably derived from the law of similarity and are accordingly examples of negative magic. Just as a savage eats many animals or plants in order to acquire certain desirable qualities with which he believes them to be endowed, so he avoids eating many other animals and plants lest he should acquire certain undesirable qualities with which he believes them to be infected. In eating the former, he practices positive magic. In abstaining from the latter, he practices negative magic. Many examples of such positive magic will meet us later on. Here I will give a few instances of such negative magic or taboo. Malagasy taboos on food based on the principle of homeopathic magic. For example, in Madagascar, soldiers are forbidden to eat a number of foods lest on the principle of homeopathic magic they should be tainted by certain dangerous or undesirable properties which are supposed to inhere in these particular viands. Thus they may not taste hedgehog as it is feared that this animal, from its propensity of coiling up into a ball when alarmed, will impart a timid, shrinking disposition to those who partake of it. Again, no soldier should eat an ox's knee, lest, like an ox, he should become weak in the knees and unable to march. Further, the warrior should be careful to avoid partaking of a cock that has died fighting or anything that has been speared to death, and no male animal may be on any account be killed in his house while he is away at the wars, for it seems obvious that if he were to eat the cock that had died fighting, he would himself be slain on the field of battle. If he were to partake of an animal that had been speared, he would be speared himself. If a male animal were killed in his house during his absence, he would himself be killed in like manner, and perhaps at the same instant. Further, the Malagasy soldier must destroy kidneys, because in the Malagasy language, the word for kidney is the same as that for shot. So shot, it would certainly be if he ate out a kidney. Kafra and Zulu taboos on food based on the principle of homeopathic magic. Again, a Kafra has been known to refuse to eat two mice caught at the same time in one trap, alleging that were he to do so his wife would give birth to twins. Yet the same man would eat freely of mice if they were caught singly. Clearly he imagined that if he ate the two mice he would be infected with a virus of doublets and would communicate the infection to his wife. Amongst the Zulus, there are many foods which are similarly forbidden on homeopathic principles. It may be well to give some specimens of these prohibitions, as they have been described by the Zulus themselves. There is among the black men, they say, the custom of abstaining from certain foods. If a cow has the calf taken from her dead, and the mother too dies before the calf is taken away, young people who have never had a child abstain from the flesh of that cow. I do not mean to speak of girls. There is not even a thought of whether they can eat it. For it is said that the cow will produce a similar evil among the women, so that one of them will be like the cow when she is in childbirth, be unable to give birth like the cow, and die together with her child. On this account, therefore, the flesh of such a cow is abstained from. Further, pig's flesh is not eaten by girls on any account, for it is an ugly animal, its mouth is ugly, its snout is long. Therefore girls do not eat it, thinking, if they eat it, a resemblance to the pig will appear among their children. They abstain from it on that account. There are many things which are abstained from among black people through fear of bad resemblance. For it is said, there was a person who once gave birth to an elephant and a horse, but we do not know if that is true. But they are now abstained from on that account through thinking that they will produce an evil resemblance if eaten. And the elephant is said to produce an evil resemblance. For when it is killed, many parts of its body resemble those of a female. Its breasts, for instance, are just like those of a woman. Young people, therefore, fear to eat it. It is only eaten on account of famine when there is no food. And each of the young women say, It is no matter if I do give birth to an elephant and live. That is better than not to give birth to it and die of famine. So it is eaten from mere necessity. Another thing which is abstained from is the entrails of cattle. Men do not eat them, because they are afraid if they eat them, the enemy will stab them in the bowels. Young men do not eat them. They are eaten by old people. Another thing which is not eaten is the underlip of a bullock, for it is said, A young person must not eat it, for it will produce an evil resemblance in the child. The lip of the child will tremble continually, for the lower lip of the bullock moves constantly. 
They do not therefore eat it. For if a child of a young person is seen with his mouth trembling, it is said, it was injured by its father who ate the lower lip of a bullock. Also another thing which is abstained from is that portion of the pouch of a bullock which is called umtala. For the umtala has no villi, it has no pile, it is merely smooth and hard. It is therefore said, if it is eaten by young people, their children will be born without hair, and their heads will be bare like a man's knee. It is therefore abstained from. Magical telepathy. The reader may have observed that in some of the foregoing examples of taboos, the magical influence is supposed to operate at considerable distances. Thus, among the Blackfeet Indians, the wives and children of an eagle hunter are forbidden to use an awl during his absence, lest the eagles should scratch the distant husband and father. And again, no male animal may be killed in the house of a Malagasy soldier while he is away at the wars, lest the killing of the animal should entail the killing of the man. This belief in the sympathetic influence exerted on each other by persons or things at a distance is of the essence of magic. Whatever doubt science may entertain as to the possibility of action at a distance, magic has none. Faith in telepathy is one of its first principles. A modern advocate of the influence of mind upon mind at a distance would have no difficulty in convincing a savage. A savage believed in it long ago. And what is more, he acted on his belief with a logical consistency such as his civilized brother in the faith has not yet, so far as I am aware, exhibited in his conduct. For the savage is convinced, not only that magical ceremonies affect persons and things afar off, but that the simplest acts of daily life may do so too. Hence, on important occasions, the behavior of friends and relations at a distance is often regulated by a more or less elaborate code of rules, the neglect of which may be the one set of persons would, it is supposed, entail misfortune or even death on the absent ones. In particular, when a party of men are out hunting or fighting, their kinsfolk at home are often expected to do certain things or to abstain from doing certain others for the sake of ensuring the safety and success of the distant hunters or warriors. I will now give some instances of this magic telepathy, both in its positive and in its negative aspect. Telepathy in hunting among the Diaks, Shams, Hottentots, etc. In Laos, when an elephant hunter is starting for the chase, he warns his wife not to cut her hair or oil her body in his absence, for if she cut her hair, the elephant would burst the toils. If she oiled herself, it would slip through them. When a Diak village has turned out to hunt wild pigs in the jungle, the people who stay at home may not touch oil or water with their hands during the absence of their friends, for if they did so, the hunters would all be butter-fingered, and the prey would slip through their hands. In setting out to look for the rare and precious eagle wood on the mountains, cham peasants enjoin their wives, whom they leave at home, not to scold or quarrel in their absence, for such domestic brawls would lead to their husbands being rent in pieces by bears and tigers. A hottentot woman whose husband is out hunting must do one of two things all the time he is away. Either she must light a fire and keep it burning till he comes back, or if she does not choose to do that, she must go to the water and continue to splash it above on the ground. When she is tired with throwing the water about, no place may be taken by her servant, but the exercise must, in any case, be kept up without cessation. To cease splashing the water or to let the fire out would be equally fatal to the husband's prospect of a successful bag. In Yule Island, Torres Straits, when the men are gone to fetch sago, a fire is lit and carefully kept burning the whole time of their absence, for the people believe that if it went out, the voyagers would fare ill. At the other end of the world, the Lapps similarly object to extinguish brand and water while any members of the family are out fishing, since to do so would spoil their luck. Telepathy in hunting among the Kunegs, Eskimos, and Californian Indians. Among the Kunegs of Alaska, a traveller once observed a young woman lying wrapped in a bearskin in the corner of a hut. On asking whether she were ill, he learned that her husband was out whale fishing, and that until his return she had to lie fasting in order to ensure a good catch. Among the Eskimos of Alaska, similar notions prevail. The women during the whaling season remain in comparative idleness, as it is considered not good for them to sew while the men are out in the boats. If during this period any garments should need to be repaired, the women must take them far back out of sight of the sea and mend them there in little tents in which just one person can sit. And while the crews are at sea, no work should be done at home which would necessitate pounding or hewing or any kind of noise, and in the huts of men who are away in the boats, no work of any kind whatever should be carried on. When the Eskimos of Avalik and Iglulik 
are away hunting on the ice. The bedding may not be raised up, because they think that to do so would cause the ice to crack and drift off, and so the men might be lost. And among these people in the winter, when the new moon appears, boys must run out of the snow house, take a handful of snow, and put it into the kettle. It is believed that this helps the hunter to capture the seal and bring it home. When the Maidu Indians of California were engaged in driving deer into the snares which they had prepared for them, and which consisted of fences stretched from tree to tree, the women and children who were left behind in the village had to observe a variety of regulations. The women had to keep quiet and spend much of the time indoors. The children might not romp, shout, jump over things, kick, run, or fall down, or throw stones. If these rules were broken, it was believed that the deer would become unmanageable and would jump the fence so that the whole drive would be unsuccessful. Telepathy in hunting among the Gilyaks, Dukagers, etc. While a Gilyak hunter is pursuing the game in the forest, his children at home are forbidden to make drawings on wood or on sand, for they fear that if the children did so, the paths in the forest would become as perplexed as the lines in the drawings so that the hunter might lose his way and never return. A Russian political prisoner once taught some Gilyak children to read and write, but their parents forbade them to write when any of their fathers was away from home. For it seemed to them that writing was a peculiarly complicated form of drawing, and they stood aghast at the idea of the danger to which such a drawing would expose the hunters out in the wild woods. Among the Jukagirs of northeastern Siberia, when a young man is out hunting, his unmarried sister at home may not look at his footprints nor eat certain parts of the game killed by him. If she leaves the house while he is absent at the chase, she must keep her eyes fixed on the ground and may not speak of the chase nor ask any questions about it. When a Nuba of northeastern Africa goes to El Obeid for the first time, he tells his wife not to wash or oil herself and not to wear pearls round her neck during his absence because by doing so she would draw down on him the most terrible misfortunes. When the bushmen are out hunting, any bad shots they may make are set down to such causes as that the children at home are playing on the men's beds or the like, and that the wives who are allowed such things to happen are blamed for their husbands' indifferent marksmanship. Telepathy in hunting supposed disastrous in effect of wives' infidelity. Elephant hunters in East Africa believe that if their wives prove unfaithful in their absence, this gives the elephant power over the pursuer, who will accordingly be killed or severely wounded. Hence, if a hunter hears of his wife's misconduct, he abandons the chase and returns home. If a Wagogo hunter is unsuccessful or is attacked by a lion, he attributes it to his wife's misbehaviour at home and returns to her in great wrath. When he is away hunting, she may not let any one pass behind her or stand in front of her as she sits, and she must lie on her face in bed. The Moxos Indians of eastern Bolivia thought that if a hunter's wife was unfaithful to him in his absence, he would be bitten by a serpent or a jaguar. Accordingly, if such an accident happened to him, it was sure to entail the punishment and often the death of the woman, whether she was innocent or guilty. An Aleutian hunter of sea otters thinks that he cannot kill a single animal if during his absence from home his wife should be unfaithful or his sister unchaste. Telepathy in the Search for the Sacred Cactus the Huicol Indians of Mexico treat as a demigod, a species of cactus which throws the eater into a state of ecstasy. The plant does not grow in their country, and has to be fetched every year by men who make a journey of 43 days for the purpose. Meanwhile, the wives at home contribute to the safety of their absent husbands by never walking fast, much less running, while the men are on the road. They also do their best to ensure the benefits which, in the shape of rain, good crops and so forth are expected to flow from the sacred mission. With the intention they subject themselves to severe restrictions like those imposed upon their husbands. During the whole of the time which elapses till the festival of the cactus is held, neither party washes except on certain occasions, and then only with water brought from the distant country where the holy plant grows. They also fast much, eat no salt, and are bound to strict continence. Anyone who breaks this law is punished with illness, and, moreover, jeopardizes the result which all are striving for. Health, luck and life are to be gained by gathering the cactus, the gourd of the god of fire, but inasmuch as the pure fire cannot benefit the impure, men and women must not only remain chaste for the time being, but must also purge themselves from the taint of past sin.
Hence, four days after the men have started, the women gather and confess to Grandfather Fire, which what men they have been in love with from childhood till now. They may not admit a single one, for if they did so, the men would not find a single cactus. So to refresh their memories, each one prepares a string with as many knots as she has had lovers. This she brings to the temple, and standing before the fire, she mentions aloud all the men she has scored on her string, name after name. Having ended her confessions, she throws a string into the fire, and when the god has consumed it in his pure flame, her sins are forgiven her, and she departs in peace. From now on the women are averse even to letting men pass near them. The cactus seekers themselves make, in like manner, a clean breast of all their frailties. For every peccadillo they tie a knot on a string, and, after they have talked to all the five winds, they deliver the rosary of their sins to the leader who burns it in the fire. Telepathy in the Search for Camphor Many of the indigenous tribes of Sarawak are firmly persuaded that were the wives to commit adultery while their husbands are searching for camphor in the jungle, the camphor obtained by the men would evaporate. Husbands can discover by certain knots in the tree when their wives are unfaithful, and it is said that in former days many women were killed by jealous husbands on no better evidence than that of these knots. Further, the wives dare not touch a comb while their husbands are away collecting the camphor, for if they did so, the interstices between the fibres of the tree, instead of being filled with the precious crystals, would be empty like the spaces between the teeth of a comb. Telepathy in hunting, fishing, and trading. While men of the Taoripi, or Montumotu tribe of eastern New Guinea, are away hunting, fishing, fighting, or on any long journey, the people who remain at home must observe strict chastity, and may not let the fire go out. Those of them who stay in the men's clubhouses must further abstain from eating certain foods and from touching anything that belongs to others. A breach of these rules might, it is believed, entail the failure of the expedition to Epithy in New Guinea. Among the tribes of Gilvig Bay in northwestern New Guinea, where the men are gone on a long journey, as to Sharam or Taidor, the wives and sisters left at home sing to the moon, accompanying the lay with the booming music of gongs. The singing takes place in the afternoons, beginning two or three days before the new moon, and lasting for the same time after it. If the silver sickle of the moon is seen in the sky, they raise a loud cry of joy. Asked why they do so, they answer, Now we see the moon, and so do our husbands. And now we know that they are well. If we did not sing, they would be sick, or some other misfortune would befall them. On nights when the moon is at the full, the natives of Dore, in northeastern New Guinea, go out fishing in the lagoons. The mode of proceeding is to poison the water with the pounded roots of a certain plant, which has a powerful narcotic effect. The fish are stunted by it, and are so easily caught. While the men are at work on the moonlit water, the people on the shore must keep as still as death with their eyes fixed on the fishermen. But no woman with child may be among them, for if she were there and looked at the water, the poison would be at once lose its effect, and the fish would escape. Telepathy in the Kay Islands In the Kay Islands in the southwest of New Guinea, as soon as a vessel that is about to sail for a distant port has been launched, the part of the beach on which it lay is covered as speedily as possible with palm branches and becomes sacred. No one may thenceforth cross that spot till the ship comes home. To cross it sooner would cause a vessel to perish. Moreover, all the time that the voyage lasts, three or four young girls, specially chosen for the duty, are supposed to remain in sympathetic connection with the mariners and to contribute by their behaviour to the safety and success of the voyage. On no account except for the most necessary purpose may they quote the room that has been assigned to them. More than that, so long as the vessels believed to be at sea, they must remain absolutely motionless, crouched on their mats with their hands clasped between their knees. They may not turn their heads to the left or the right, or make any other movement whatsoever. If they did, it would cause the boat to pitch a toss, and they may not eat any sticky stuff, such as rice boiled in coconut milk, for the stickiness of the food would clog the passage of the boat through the water. When the sailors are supposed to have reached their destination, the strictness of these rules is somewhat relaxed. But during the whole time that the voyage lasts, the girls are forbidden to eat fish, which have sharp bones or strings, 
such as the stingray, lest their friends at sea should be involved in sharp, stinging trouble. Telepathy in War Where beliefs like these prevail as to the sympathetic connection between friends at a distance, we need not wonder that above everything else war, with its stern yet stirring appeal to some of the steepest and tenderest of human emotions, should quicken in the anxious relations left behind a desire to turn the sympathetic bond to the utmost account for the benefit of the dear ones who may at any moment be fighting and dying far away. Hence to secure an end so natural and laudable, friends at home are apt to resort to devices which will strike us as pathetic or ludicrous, according as we may consider their object or the means adopted to effect it. Telepathy and war among the Diaks. Thus in some districts of Borneo, when a Diak is out head-hunting, his wife, or if he is unmarried, his sister, must wear a sword day and night in order that she may always be thinking of his weapons, and she may not sleep during the day, nor go to bed before two in the morning, lest her husband or brother should thereby be surprised in his sleep by an enemy. In other parts of Borneo, when the men are away on a warlike expedition, their mats are spread in their houses just as if they were at home, and the fires are kept till late in the evening and lighted again before dawn, in order that the men may not be cold. Further, the roofing of the house is open before daylight to prevent the distant husbands, brothers and sons from sleeping too late, and so being surprised by the enemy. While the Malay of the peninsula is away at the wars, his pillows and sleeping mat at home must be kept rolled up. If anyone else were to use them, the absent warrior's courage would fail and disaster would befall him. His wife and children may not have their hair cut in his absence, nor may he himself have his hair shorn. Telepathy and War Among the Sea Dayaks Among the Sea Dayaks of Banting and Sarawak, the women strictly observe an elaborate code of rules while the men are away fighting. Some of the rules are negative and some are positive, but all alike are based on the principles of magic, homeopathy and telepathy. Amongst them are the following. The women must wake very early in the morning and open the windows as soon as it is light. Otherwise, their absent husbands will oversleep themselves. The women may not oil their hair, or the men will slip. The women may neither sleep nor doze by day, or the men will be drowsy on the march. The women must cook and scatter popcorn on the veranda every morning. So will the men be agile in their movements. The rooms must be kept very tidy, all boxes being placed near the walls. For if anyone were to stumble over them, the absent husbands would fall and be at the mercy of the foe. At every meal a little rice must be left in the pot and put aside. So will the men far away always have something to eat, and need never go hungry. On no account may the women sit at the loom till their legs grow cramped. Otherwise their husbands will likewise be stiff in their joints, and unable to rise up quickly, or to run away from the foe. So in order to keep their husbands' joints supple, the women often vary their labours at the loom by walking up and down the veranda. Further, they may not cover up their faces, or the men would not be able to find their way through the tall grass or jungle. Again, the women may not sew with a needle, or the men will tread on the sharp spikes set by the enemy in the path. Should a wife prove unfaithful while her husband is away, he will lose his life in the enemy's country. Some years ago, all these rules and more were observed by the women of Banting, while their husbands were fighting for the English against rebels. But alas, these tender precautions availed them little, for many a man whose faithful wife was keeping watch and ward for him at home found a soldier's grave. Telepathy and war among the Shans, the Timorese, and the Torajas. Among the Shans of Burma, the wife of an absent warrior has to observe certain rules. Every fifth day she rests and does not work. She fills an earthen goblet with water to the brim and puts flowers into it every day. If the water sinks or the flowers fade, it is an omen of death. Moreover, she may not sleep on her husband's bed during his absence, but she sweeps the bedding clean and lays it out every night. In the island of Timor, while war is being waged, the high priest never quits the temple. His food is brought to him or cooked inside. Day and night he must keep the fire burning, for if he were to let it die out, disaster would befall the warriors and would continue so long as the earth was cold. Moreover, he must drink only hot water during the time the army is absent, for every drought of cold water would damp the spirits of the people so that they could not vanquish the enemy. Among the Torajas of Central Salives, when a party of men is out hunting for heads, 
the villagers who stay at home and especially the wives of the head-hunters have to observe certain rules in order not to hinder the absent men at their task in the first place the entrance to the lobo or spirit house is shut for the spirits of the fathers who live in that house are now away with the warriors watching over and guarding them and if any one entered their house in their absence they would hear the noise and return and would be very angry at being thus called back from the campaign moreover the people at home have to keep the house tidy the sleeping mats of the absent men must be hung on beds not rolled up as if they were to be away for a long time their wives and ex of kin may not quit the house at night every night a light burns in the house and a fire must be kept up constantly at the foot of the house ladder garments turbans and headdresses may not be laid aside at night for if the turban or headdress were put off the warrior's turban might drop from his head in the battle and the wives may sew no garments when the spirit of the head-hunter returns home in his sleep which is a torajo expression for a soldier's dream he must find everything there in good order and nothing that could vex him by the observance of these rules say the torajas the souls of the head-hunters are covered or protected in order to make them strong that they may not soon grow weary rice is strewn morning and evening on the floor of the house women too go about constantly with a certain plant of which the pods are so light and feathery that they are easily wafted by the wind for that helps to make the men nimble-footed telepathy and war among the galileries and the key islanders when galileries men are going away to war they are accompanied down to the boats by the women but after the leave-taking is over the women in returning to their houses must be careful not to stumble or fall and the house they may neither be angry nor lift up weapons against each other otherwise the men will fall and be killed in battle similarly we saw that among the chams domestic brawls at home are supposed to cause the searcher for eagle wood to fall a prey to wild beasts in the mountains further galleries women may not lay down the chopping knives in the house while their husbands are at the wars the knives must always be hung up on hooks the reason for the rule is not given we may conjecture that it is a fear list if the chopping knives were laid down by the women at home the men will be apt to lay down their weapons in the battle or at other inopportune moments in the k islands when the warriors are departed the women return indoors and bring out certain baskets containing fruits and stones these fruits and stones they anoint and place on a board murmuring as they do so o lord sun moon let the bullets rebound from our husbands brothers betrothed and other relations just as raindrops rebound from these objects which are smeared with oil as soon as the first shot is heard the baskets are put aside and the women seizing their fans rush out of their houses then waving their fans in the direction of the enemy they run through the village while they sing o golden fans let our bullets hit and those of the enemy miss in this custom the ceremony of anointing stones in order that the bullets may recoil from the men like raindrops from the stones is a piece of pure homeopathic or imitative magic but the prayer to the sun as he will be pleased to give effect to the charm is a religious and perhaps later addition the waving of the fans seems to be a charm to direct the bullets toward or away from their mark according as they are discharged from the guns of friends or foes telepathy and war among the malagasy an old historian of madagascar informs us that while the men are at the wars and until their return the women and girls cease not day and night to dance and neither lie down or take food in their own houses and although they are voluptuously inclined they would not for anything in the world have an intrigue with another man while their husband is at the war believing firmly that if that happened their husband would be either killed or wounded they believe that by dancing they impart strength courage and good fortune to their husbands accordingly during such times they give themselves no rest and this custom they observe very religiously similarly a traveller of the seventeenth century writes that in madagascar when the man is in battle or under march the wife continuously dances and sings and will not sleep or eat in her own house nor admit of the use of any other man unless she be desirous to be rid of her own for they entertain this opinion among them that if they suffer themselves to be overcome in an intestine war at home their husbands must suffer for it being engaged in a foreign expedition but on the contrary if they believe themselves chastely and dance justly 
that their then husbands, by some certain sympathetic operation, will be able to vanquish all their combatants. We have seen that among hunters in various parts of the world, the infidelity of the wife at home is believed to have a disastrous effect on her absent husband. In the Baybara Kabaleko, and among the Wagogo of East Africa, when the men are at the wars, the women at home are bound to chastity, and the Baybara Archipelago, they must fast besides. Under similar circumstances in the islands of Liti, Moa, and Lakor, the women and children are forbidden to remain inside of the houses and to twine thread or weave. Telepathy and War Among the Natives of West Africa Among the Chi-speaking peoples of the Gold Coast, the wives and men who are away with the army paint themselves white and adorn their persons with beads and charms. On the day when a battle is expected to take place, they run about armed with guns, or sticks carved to look like guns, and taking green pawpaws, fruit shaped somewhat like a melon, they hack them with knives, as if they were chopping off the heads of the foe. The pantomime is no doubt merely an imitative charm to enable the men to do to the enemy as the women do to the pawpaws. In the West African town of Fremen, while the Ashanti War was raging some years ago, Mr. Fitzgerald Marriott saw a dance performed by women whose husbands had gone as carriers to the war. They were painted white and wore nothing but a short petticoat. At their head was a shriveled old sorceress in a very short white petticoat, her black hair arranged in a sort of long projecting horn, and her black face, breasts, arms, and legs profusely adorned with white circles and crescents. All carried along white brushes made of buffalo or horsetails, and as they danced they sang, Our husbands have gone to Ashantiland. May they sweep their enemies off the face of the earth. Telepathy and war among the American Indians. Among the Thompson Indians of British Columbia, when the men were on the warpath, the women performed dances at frequent intervals. These dances were believed to ensure the success of the expedition. The dancers flourished their knives, threw long, sharp-pointed sticks forward, or drew sticks with hooked ends, repeatedly backward and forward. Throwing the sticks forward was symbolic of piercing or warding off the enemy, and drawing them back was symbolic of drawing their own men from danger. The hook at the end of the stick was particularly well adapted to serve the purpose of a life-saving apparatus. The women always pointed their weapons towards the enemy's country. They painted their faces red and sang as they danced, and they prayed to the weapons to preserve their husbands and help them to kill many foes. Some had eagle down stuck on the points of their sticks. When the dance was over, these weapons were hidden. If a woman whose husband was at the war thought she saw hair or a piece of a scalp on the weapon when she took it out, she knew that her husband had killed an enemy. But if she saw a stain of blood on it, she knew he was wounded or dead. When the men of the Yuki tribe of Indians in California were away fighting, the women at home did not sleep. They danced continually in a circle, chanting and waving leafy wands. They said that if they danced all the time, their husbands would not grow tired. Among the Haida Indians of the Queen Charlotte Islands, when the men had gone to war, the women at home would get up very early in the morning and pretend to make war by falling upon their children and feign to take them for slaves. This was supposed to help their husbands to go and do likewise. If a wife were unfaithful to her husband, and while he was away on the warpath, he would probably be killed. For ten nights, all the women at home lay with their heads towards the point of the compass to which the war canoes had paddled away. Then they changed about, for the warriors were supposed to be coming home across the sea. At Masset, the Haida women danced and sang war songs all the time their husbands were away at the wars, and they had to keep everything about them in a certain order. It was thought that a wife might kill her husband by not observing these customs. Telepathy and War Among the Kafirs of the Hindu Kush In the Kafir district of the Hindu Kush, while the men are out raiding, the women abandon their work in the fields and assemble in the villages to dance day and night. The dances are kept up most of each day and the whole of each night. Sir George Robertson, who reports the custom, more than one watched the dancers dancing at midnight and in the early morning and could see by the fitful glow of the wood fire how haggard and tired they looked yet how gravely and earnestly they persisted in what they regarded as a serious duty. The dances of these kafirs are said to be performed in honour of certain of the national gods, but when we consider the custom in connection with the others which has just been passed in review, we may reasonably surmise that it has or was originally in its essence a sympathetic charm intended to keep the absent warriors wakeful, 
lest they should be surprised in their sleep by the enemy. When a band of Carabindians of the Orinoco had gone on the warpath, their friends left in the village used to calculate as nearly as they could the exact moment when the absent warriors would be advancing to attack the enemy. Then they took two lads, laid them down on a bench, and inflicted a most severe scourging on their bare backs. This the youth submitted to without a murmur, supported in their sufferings by the firm conviction in which they had been bred from childhood, that on the constancy and fortitude with which they bore the cruel ordeal depended the valour and success of their comrades in the battle. Homeopathic Magic at Making Drums Homeopathic Magic at Making Drums So much for the savage theory of telepathy in war and the chase. We pass now to other cases of homeopathic or imitative magic. While marriageable boys of the Mercio district in British New Guinea are making their drums, they have to live alone in the forest and to observe a number of rules which are based on the principle of homeopathic magic. The drums will be used in the dances, and in order that they may give out a resonant sonorous note, great care must be taken in their construction. The boys spend from two days to a week at the task. Having chosen a suitable piece of wood, they scrape the outside into shape with a shell, and hollow out the inside by burning it with a hot coal till the sides are very thin. The skin of an iguana, made supple by being steeped in coconut milk, is then stretched over the hollow and tightened with string and glue. All the time a boy is at work on his drums, he must carefully avoid women, for if a woman or a girl were to see him, the drum would split and sound like an old cracked pot. If he ate fish, a bone would prick him and the skin of the drum would burst. If he ate a red banana, it would choke him, and the drum would give a dull, stifled note. If he tasted grated coconut, the white hands, like the white particles of the nut, would gnaw the body of the drum. If he cooked his food in the ordinary round-bellied pot, he would grow fat and would not be able to dance, and the girls would despise him and say, Your belly is big, it is a pot. Moreover, he must strictly shun water, for if he accidentally touched it with his feet, his hands or his lips, before the drum was quite hollow out, he would throw the instrument away, saying, I have touched water, my hot coal will be put out, and I shall never be able to hollow out my drum. Various Applications of Homeopathic Magic A Highland witch can sink a ship by homeopathic or imitative magic. She has only to set a small round dish floating in a milk pan full of water, and then to croon her spell. When the dish upsets in a pan, the ship will go down in the sea. They say that once three witches from Harris left home at night, after placing the milk pans thus on the floor, and strictly charging a serving maid to let nothing come near it. But while the girl was not looking, a duck came in and squatted about in the water on the floor. Next morning the witches returned and asked if anything had come near the pan. The girl said, No. Whereupon one of the witches said to the other, What a heavy sea we had last night coming round Kabaghead. If a wolf has carried off a sheep or a pig, the Estonians have a very simple mode of making him drop it. They let fall anything that they happen to have at hand, such as a cap or a glove, or what is perhaps still better, they lift a heavy stone and then let it go. By that act, on the principle of homeopathic magic, they compel the wolf to let go of his booty. End of section 5